Welcome back to On the Bench. This is Brendan Sano, and I got Josh Newberg with me. And as we continue our Meet the Beat series, we have someone who covered FSU for two seasons in what was probably like one of the weirder times to cover FSU. Uh, certainly had its ups and downs, more downs than we would like. Say, what were the ups? There's some. There's some good moments there. That is to, that is to Sean Reed of The Athletic. He has moved on to bigger and better and is uh, covering the Las Vegas Raiders for The Athletic. But he wrote some really important stories and did some fun coverage of FSU during his time on the beat. To Sean, welcome to On the Bench. How's it going? Thanks for having me on, y'all. I'm pretty good, you know, uh, kind of stuck in transition here, moving from state to state. But, but besides that, just kind of. You know, moving on to this, this draft coverage, it's nice to have, like, some actual sports to write about. I know college football is a little weird right now, so I'm thankful for that part of it. On one side, you picked a hell of a time to switch jobs because of the move and, like you said, your inability to actually move to the state you're trying to get to. But on the other side, covering the NFL right now is probably the best thing you could be covering because there's actual news there. So kind of a kind of a, you know, a toss-up there of, uh, of whether it's easy or not for you right now. Uh, have you enjoyed the coverage you've been able to do of the NFL so far, knowing it's only been a short amount of time. Yeah, it's been fun. It's kind of been an easier transition since it is draft time. And I just got done covering college football. So a lot of the prospect analysis and forecasting, which guys may be in what range is a little bit easier for me since I actually mm-hmm. have been watching college football full time the last two years. You know, obviously when you're covering NFL, you don't, just don't have time for it, even if you are into it. Um, so that's kind of made this transition easier than it normally would be. I would think if I maybe joined in in the middle of free agency or something like that. Uh, sure. So it's been pretty smooth. It's been kind of weird uh, covering the Las Vegas Raiders <laughs> while they're in California and I'm in Georgia. But you know, I, I just try not to think about the, the logistics of it too much. Strange times. To Sean, it's it's Newberg. How you doing, man? Thanks for sitting down with us. Good man. Thanks for having me. On. How would you describe your two years covering Florida State? Um, <laughs> it starts with an um. Which, which it's a fun. loaded question. That's not. I mean, it's a simple question, but that's not an easy question to answer for you. Uh, that give me give me your. Yeah, I think pretty. I would say underwhelming from the football perspective, but covering it, it was pretty eventful. Like. I think with when you're a journalist, you either want a team to be really good or kind of a dumpster fire to a degree, just because those are the two most, most interesting things to write about. And I think having, you know, the worst season in 40 years, the worst stretch of season in 40 years, and then having a coaching change right after a coaching change, like just those storylines and major changes and the whole booster club situation and all of that made it still fun. To, to cover those two years, even though the football wasn't as good, if that makes sense. But I mean, from your perspective, this was your first time covering a team like on the beat, right? Outside of college. Yeah. So <laughs> finding out that you're going to cover Florida State. Now you got the job, you accepted the job before or after Jimbo Fisher was, was, was there. After, was he already? Yeah, I, I basically, so he was already gone. Yeah, he was already gone. Yeah. So, Obviously, you had some high hopes. You know, we're gonna we're gonna go down to Tallahassee. This is Florida State. You know, you've heard about Florida State growing up. Did you know when you took the job that, you know, the football program was in the position that it was, or did you think that they were just gonna bounce back and it was gonna be business as usual? No, no. I I took the job 
I think it was July 2018. So this was spring practice had already been over under Willie Taggart. Gotcha. The season was closing in, and like the hype train was like in full effect now. Like they were, yeah, yeah, it was. Like the ranking, yeah, they were the rankings had just come out. You know, they were uh, I think 16 or something like that, 18. Um, and you know, like you said, growing up and knowing Florida State, you know, I just assumed they were good. That was kind of my thinking. Right. Even though I knew they had come off a season that wasn't that great, I knew DeAndre Francois got hurt, had a coaching change. You know, I kind of gave it, you know, the benefit of the doubt from that from that degree, and so. I definitely, you know, expected them to be probably a, a double-digit win team, like I guess most people did before that mm-hmm. season, based off their ranking. But, um, you know, very quickly on that, that week one against Virginia Tech, I, I realized <laughs> what was actually going on. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> this was a unique a unique situation for any writer to be in, let alone somebody that, like I said, was covering their first team. Did you? reach out to anybody did you lean on anybody within the athletic or you know any of your mentors when this thing started heading south you know not a lot of you don't learn about in journalism school how to cover a dumpster fire and when things are you know completely off the rails what you're supposed to write was there anybody that you leaned on in those times i said a major major person was was ryan clark he's covering the um the colorado avalanche for mm-hmm. us now uh, for the athletic but he used to cover uh florida state for war champ a few years before I got there. Um, and so I think he was there the last national championship, I'm pretty sure. And so he had, obviously he had covered the team when it was at a high, but you know, with him being a more experienced journalist than me, he you know had obviously covered teams that weren't doing that well. And he just had inherent knowledge about Florida state and, and who to get in touch with, you know, both with the football staff and administratively. Uh, so he, he was the main one that helped me out, especially in those early months, because like you said, you know, coming straight out of college, you know, not only had I had not had prior history with Florida State, but I'd never worked full time before as a journalist. You know, it was my first job. So mm-hmm. the, the basic, you know, principles of being a journalist, I was, I was still learning in that department as well, along with picking up this new beat and then having things go not as expected on the beat. So it was, just, it was a lot to juggle at once. But I think having that network at The Athletic and branching out, even though I was the only person in the company in Tallahassee, I had other people, whether it was, like I said, Ryan or, or some of the national writers like Bruce Feldman or, or later on Andy Staples and guys like that mm-hmm. who did chip in and help me out where I needed it. What was the most enjoyable aspect of your two years in Tallahassee? I think I had the most fun while I was – I traveled a lot to do a bunch of recruiting profiles. Like I would – whether it was while they were down in IMG, I would go and, and visit guys who were at Tampa or maybe even Orlando high schools. That, that were committed already and then kind of write about not so much, you know, necessarily how many, like it didn't matter to me. Like if a guy had three stars or whatever, like if he mm-hmm. had an interesting story, I wanted to do it. And so it was just kind of fun to travel around all these different cities and in Georgia, some of these rural cities that I would never go to otherwise. And, you know, actually meet the kid and their coach and their parents and kind of figure out who they are just so that when they actually got to Florida state, I had a more informed you know, just base of, of what to expect from them, you know, once they were actually on campus. And, you know, I, I think that's something that, you know, regardless of how the team is doing, it's an, a pretty generally positive thing to do. Like you're not going to write too many, I guess, negative recruiting profiles about guys. Um, right. <laughs> and so it was a nice break away from, I guess, all the, the negativity that was going on with the mm-hmm. active team, just kind of looking forward to the future and, and the potential for change. Some hope, some excitement. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. What was your favorite of all the recruiting stories to Sean? Like what was your favorite 
one you were able to do in person, whether it was like a player that you just connected with or a city or area you got to go to that was fun to experience? Like which one a couple years later sticks with you? I think probably the most interesting one was I went to uh, Venice to to profile Malachi Wagner. Josh's boy. Yeah, I dealt a lot with him. Yeah, yeah, and he's just like I wasn't sure what to expect going in with him because he's kind of like this. He was kind of like this mystery kid to a degree while he was a recruit. Um, and when I met him, he was like this super like inquisitive, like deep thinking type kid. <laughs> like it was kind of jarring a little bit. Um, and he was just like even just watching him practice, I could tell how much physical talent he had. Not you know, obviously seeing all the videos of him playing basketball and getting LeBron and D-Wade to stand up and all that kind of stuff. And it just it seemed like he had a lot of potential. And I just it, something was, was off for me just because, you know, he didn't have, a, I would say, a ton of offers. It didn't seem like a, a ton of the huge schools were going after him. Um, and then him just kind of having that lower profile. And then I, I got into it and learned about the, the Adrian McPherson connection and some of the issues he had had at home and, uh, just some of the, the deeper issues that he had. And I think that's kind of what those recruiting stories, like I was saying, you know, you kind of look at that from the surface, you see a guy, you know, he's a, a blue chip recruit. He has all the talent in the world, has all the size, athletic ability, but then he has this kind of rough background story that you didn't know about. And so I think his was probably the most interesting, definitely because I think like a month after I wrote that, he ended up flipping to uh, <laughs> Tennessee. Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> so the outcome wasn't pro Florida State, but the the story was probably one of the most interesting. And he was an interesting kid. I know what you mean. I, the, I I talk with like hundreds of kids each cycle, and every now and again, you talk to somebody like Malachi that just sees it from the bigger picture. And I don't know what it is, but it, if you talk to him, you probably know it within the first thirty seconds that he's a little bit different in a good way from most recruits. Yeah, I think he was like standing on the sideline with his teammate during like a water break, and he asked him something like, "What's your 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 favorite mantra for life or something?" I'm like, "What seventeen year old is like asking? <laughs> like who asks these things?" Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, was, I asked him some real a, basic questions about school, and he related it to life and a bigger picture and and stuff like that. I one the player he comes, he reminds me most of personality wise that I've ever covered was Nelson Aguilar. And Nelson was that type of kid. Like you, you interviewed Nelson as a junior in high school and you walk out of there thinking like, like, yeah, he's going to be a good football player, but he's, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be all right in life too. Some yeah. kids just get the Raiders it. Just, the Raiders just signed him. I'm going to have to go talk to him now. Oh, full circle. <laughs> full <laughs> circle. I did not know Nelson was a Raider. That's good. Well, you'll enjoy covering him then. You'll, he, he can, uh, he can give you some good perspective on things. You're going to have to slide to Sean his number after this, after we're done, get, get him the hookup for, for a one-on-one. Right. Uh, so so one, of, one of my favorite things of when Tashawn was on the beat is we'd be able to have conversations. Like if Tashawn tweeted something or I tweeted something that we disagreed with, we'd be able to talk about it like rational human beings away from it. But, but when you're on Twitter, you get people going – crazy because it's twitter right and it's polarizing you have to have sides uh and Tashana, i viewed you as someone who was viewed as polarizing by the fsu beat people love some of your feature stories other people didn't like the opinions that you had or the stances you took in covering the team i guess how did you view the way you covered the team like what do you think you did uniquely uh and and did you uh, enjoy your time covering fsu yeah i think like the the feature heavy aspect of it was probably 
the most unique aspect of it just because, you know, working with the athletic, I kind of have more leeway to, I don't necessarily have to write every day and I don't have a limit on how long my stories can be. So that frees me up to, you know, in the middle of fall camp, you know, do a random 4,000 word story on a three-star offensive lineman or something like that, you know? Um, so I think that kind of built in with the company that I worked for, it kind of gave me, I guess, a built-in advantage to that degree, just because some other people with their demands that they have, like you have to write a story every day or you have these certain accounts, like you don't necessarily have the time to to break out and do that kind of deep dive on a, on a random kid. Um, I think when it comes to just the overall coverage, I tried to stay objective. I feel like I, cause I didn't really have any ties to Florida state coming into it. Like on either side, it wasn't like I was, I grew up a fan of Florida or something, or I grew up a Florida state fan. So I had these like inherent biases. Like I legitimately, I can say the entire time I covered the team, I did not care if they won, won or lost any game that they played. Like it just didn't matter to me. Like I was able to just, and I think that helped me with my coverage just because when you don't care, like it's very easy to tell it for what it is, I think. Um, and so I know some people, like, I feel like most fans, like, they just wanted me to be positive or find something positive all the time, unless it was like bashing Willie Taggart or something like that. <laughs> uh, but like, I wasn't afraid to just say like, no, they suck right now. or They aren't very good right now. Or, or things don't look good. You know, I, I was trying to just be straightforward and then tell how it, how it was. And I think that rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, just from my perspective, uh, you know, I, I think early on, just, this was my first job. I did have spells where I get caught up in it and responded on Twitter and, and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I think I kind of learned. We all do. It, it really yeah. <laughs> don't don't like, feel it doesn't bad. really matter. Yeah. <laughs> My approach is to argue back and forth with people with like logic and data. And Josh told me that's stupid. So I've stopped doing it. Uh, and he's correct. So sometimes, you know, man. so I know for me, like I didn't grow up. I didn't go to FSU. Josh went to FSU. Chris Nee went to FSU. Like those guys have stronger ties to FSU than I do. I grew up watching FSU, admiring FSU. Like I had FSU gear, like when I was in grade school, but I try not to talk about that anymore. Cause I realized that would rub people the wrong way when I would talk about like UCF or that's where I went and same thing mm-hmm. with you from Missouri. So I think at a certain, there's a certain portion of people who just, if you're not with us, you're against us. And I do think there was, some of that i'm not sure if you viewed it that way but that's certainly i would watch you interact with twitter uh and be like yeah some people just it doesn't matter what deshaun's going to say right or wrong like people are going to just not trust him yeah and i mean like i've like i saw some funny people like they said i had sec ties like i was like some kind of mobster boss getting paid <laughs> off by mizzou or something <laughs> like, like 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 mizzou's the uh the the blue blood of the sec like you're carrying out the agenda right. for, for for missouri football and the sec right. he's a plant <laughs> oh my god we've never won anything ever like I, I promise i'm not a threat but yeah just you know it's certain people you're just not going to be able to convince and some people don't want to be convinced they just want that reaction from you or to get you riled up and so over time i kind of learned a little bit more to just tune that out um you know whether it was media or, or just fans or whatever it may be so uh it didn't really bother me like i think people thought they were bothering me but i, I don't really care um like you said, you know, something could happen on Twitter, like even whether it's you or maybe me and Bud Elliott would disagree about something and then we'd see each other and it's fine. Like it's not personal at all. It's just a disagreement. And I think that's where people get it confused. Like just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean like I dislike you as a person. Like it's not that that deep for me. So one of the stories that you wrote that I thought was one of the most impactful, one of the most interesting. And with that, that means also polarizing too, usually 
Uh, and it was one that was retweeted by Bomani Jones. But then I know FSU fans, I saw at least some were agitated over it. And that was after Willie Taggart was fired. And, and the headline is, what's the hurry? Looking closer at the timing of Willie Taggart's firing. It's a thorough researched article about what Willie Taggart didn't do at Florida State. Uh, but part of the elements in that story deals with race and him being a black head coach who didn't get as much time as his white peers uh, among those guys who were hired uh, what the early signing period era, I guess you could say. Uh, curious to get your thoughts to Shaw. Like we're coming from different perspectives, right? Like I, Josh and I are white guys and, and you're a black guy and, and we have different life perspectives uh, because of that. I'm sure. What was your perspective of Willie Taggart, how he was treated uh, and race? If, if you do think it was a factor in him being dismissed as early as he did, I guess how, how big of a factor was that from your viewpoint and your research and, and what you did in reporting the story? Yeah, I think the you know the bottom line obviously is just you know Willie Tiger Tiger wasn't getting the job done. You know he just just wasn't doing a good job. You know no matter how you look at it, and I think that's you know I think that might have been the first line that I had in that story that kind of got lost in Twitter just because people you know didn't react without actually reading the story. <laughs> but um, it was Willie, you know, Willie Tiger think... wasn't getting the job done as Florida State's coach is the first sentence to your to your point. I have it up in front of me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and so. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to argue that he was doing a good job. I think that's where people got it confused. It was just that the amount of time he was given to start doing a good job was just like an unprecedented like level of time considering how much money it required to get rid of him after mm-hmm. such a brief time. You know, just pretty much to that point, it hadn't happened. And even later when Arkansas got rid of uh, Chad Morris in pretty much the, the same amount of time. He didn't cost nearly as much as Willie Taggart did. So even then it was, it was still unprecedented. Uh, and I think, you know, there, you could look at many reasons for why he got fired football wise, but I think it's kind of, you have to look at that, that other side of it too. Not to say that that's the only reason necessarily, but you know, black coaches do have a history of having a shorter leash. Uh, you know, they don't have as much leeway to, be average, uh, let alone be bad, you know, for very long before they're cut loose. And many times, you know, after they're cut loose, they don't get in a second opportunity um, at the same level. Obviously, Willie Terry got another job at, at FAU, um, but I don't know if he'll ever be a, a power five head coach again. And, and most times guys aren't after they get fired, they go on to be, you know, assistants for the rest of their career or whatever it is. And I think that's something that, you know, you look at the data and, and like, as you said, some of the, the, the examples that I pointed out, you know, that's not a trend necessarily that you see, you know, with, with other white coaches, you know, even let's say Scott Frost at Nebraska, for example. Um, I think he might've had the same record through two years as Willie Taggart. He just got an extension <laughs> and Nebraska has more national titles than Florida State. I know they haven't been good as recently, but that's a storied program, you know? And so there's just certain differences that you notice. And that was just what the, the story was bringing to the table. I wasn't saying that that was the long reason that he might've got fired. I was just trying to introduce it as a possibility or a factor or something that even if it's a 10% factor, you know, something that could have mattered. And from the reaction on Twitter, like you said, some people just thought that was the wildest thing in the world that race could matter in, in, in 2020 or 2019. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I agree. Like I think it could be both, right? Like there's an element of people look at race whether consciously or subconsciously, and it factors into decisions of, of how we view things based on our experiences. And at the same time, I would contend, like, I don't I don't believe Willie Taggart deserved more time as a coach. Just I, I think we saw enough, and the recruiting wasn't getting markedly better. But I'm curious and on your thoughts, Deshaun, like, do you think, 
Let's say you, if you were the one who had, who was calling the shots, like, would you have given Willie Taggart another year? Do you think he was deserving of that? Uh, given everything, the financials and everything else that was involved mm-hmm. in it, would you have given him another year? I, th- I think just considering, even if you don't give him another year, I, g- I get why they, they ended up, you know, firing him before, before the season ended to, you know, get ahead on the search and get out before, before the early signing period. But, you know, even if they had, let's say, waited to the end of the regular season to do it, I mean, they still didn't hire Norvell until well after that was over, you know, um, even though he was, they had been in communication with him, of course. Uh, and so I think they at least could have seen, you know, it just felt like a situation where they didn't want to give him the chance to, let's say, make a bowl game. Because I feel like whether they fire him or not, they would have finished with the same record, most likely, you know, and still played in that bowl game. I don't think they would have... I think they, I think they still would have beat Boston College, uh, you know, that lower level school that they played as well. Um, and I think it was a situation where it's hard to fire a guy after he improves, but it's easier to do so like before you give him a chance to. Um, and I, you know, I didn't think that, you know, this recruiting class that they have, you know, in 2020. I mean, you know, obviously Norvell made some some late additions. Obviously, the quarterback was the big position that he upgraded um, after. Tiger failed to do so for two years, um, but I, you know, I just don't think that it would have been that much worse of a class if Tiger was there. It probably would have been around the same ranked class mm-hmm. in the end. Um, what I'm getting at is, I think the way the team performs in this upcoming season—I mean, I guess if we have a season—would um, <laughs> have been about the same whether you, you know, fired him or not. Um, and I think for this to be worth it you know, Mark Norville has to get them back to that standard that, you know, they're so tied to, you know, winning those double-digit games, uh, competing for national championships. Because anything short, and it wasn't working just because of the financial implications. You know, this is a program, you know, as as you all know, you know, has been losing money for years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were expecting this to be a bad year anyway. Um, and then you throw on a, a $17, $18 million buyout along with the cost of hiring a new staff. Um, you know, ticket sales are going down anyway just because people aren't going to games as much. Um, And so let's say Norvell struggles, you know, or or doesn't get the team back to that. And you have to part ways with him too. You know, you just kind of, I don't don't think they want to fall into that cycle of ending up like somebody like Tennessee, for example. And I think that's just the the risk that they're taking with it. And so I would have been cautious to do it that early, I think, just because of that element. Um, I get why they did it. You know, I'm not saying it was, you know, out of the question to do it. I just probably wouldn't have for those larger reasons. Mm. What was your relationship like with the with that staff? The Tiger staff? Yeah. yeah. Having it been the first team that you covered and everything, how, how'd they treat you? Yeah, I think um, initially it was a little bit, um, they were a little bit hesitant to interact with me just as, because I, I wasn't there for spring practice, obviously. So I know, um, the access wasn't the greatest in the spring, but, you know, at least other mem- media members had had an opportunity to interact with them and they had been in place at their respective, you know, papers or, or websites for a while. So they were well known in the area and kind of had, you know, a reputation they could lean on um, and somebody to vouch for them. And I kind of just came in, you know, with, without any of that. And so it was a little di- bit difficult initially to kind of build those relationships, but I think, like I said, leaning on that network at the athletic a little bit, um, you know, I was able to to get in touch with some people, you know, relatively early on in my first season, and I think, 
you know, I think something that helped me when it came to developing relationships a little bit more in that in the off season that followed was like I spoke of earlier, just the nature of my coverage, like just being kind of even um, and objective. Like it, they sucked obviously that year. And so I, I wrote about why they sucked, but it wasn't like um, over the top, you know, like it was within a reason. And I think, I think they respected in the long run that, you know, I wasn't necessarily kissing their ass or anything, but um, and I wasn't being overly dramatic either. Um, and so I think over time, especially once they saw like the, the recruiting stories that I did and, and how many you know high school coaches and, and players I was talking to, um, you kind of have that give and take relationship where you may know something they need or, or vice versa and that kind of thing. And so I would say going into my second season, those relationships were pretty strong um, with the, the few guys on the coaching staff. Um, it never got to the point of being like buddy, buddy or anything, but it was a, a good working relationship. You you have a unique perspective on the beat itself. Like we have all these Florida State reporters coming on the on the podcast to talk about themselves, um, but the beat as a whole is kind of a unique beast. Uh, you're a little bit of an outsider because you you just came in two years ago, and I'm a bit of an outsider because I I live in St. Pete and I do my thing from here, so I'm not. I don't neither, consider my neither of you are local anymore. Yes. <laughs> I am. <laughs> we can no longer use that hashtag. <laughs> but um, tell me, like, w- what are some of the characteristics of this beat at Florida State? Um, I feel like, you know, it's I guess the best way to describe because it feels like most of the guys who've covered the team have been there for a long time. I guess so. It's kind mm-hmm. of like they're. I mean, you've you've had beat writers even if they've only been there for five years now they've seen three different head coaches you know and that's that right. seems like like Jimbo Fisher seems like forever ago and you have guys who've been through all that and even some guys who were around for for Bobby Bowden yeah. um and so it just feels very entrenched it feels like guys know all of the history um they're very well informed on that um and they kind of have it down to I guess a routine at this point to where you know it's I won't say it's easy for them, but, you know, they just kind of just know what they're doing without having to think about it too much. And so I think coming in as an outsider, um, it's kind of hard to compete with that just because you obviously don't have all of that, you know, history with the program and that knowledge of the program. Even if you may have watched them growing up, you just can't know the things that somebody who's covered the team for 20 years has known, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you kind of start off with a disadvantage. Um, but I do think something that, helped me or maybe you can attest to this is you know not having those constraints i think you know those demands like those daily demands of having to write uh you know this practice observation story or whatever it may be um you know i think being able to write more features and and getting out and writing somewhere outside of the box stories like i did in my time there um it helps you you know differentiate yourself you know start your own following and kind of separate yourself and I think that's something that, like I said, even if guys wanted to, they didn't have the wiggle room. Like they couldn't just go to practice and not write about practice. Like I could, like with that flexibility, like I could go to every practice every week and never write about it. Like if I wanted to. Um, And so I think that aspect of it kind of, I think that was kind of a hole on the beat I was able to fill. Um, But I think it's definitely, if you just try to do that daily thing that everybody else is doing, you know, why would somebody pay attention to what you're doing compared to somebody who's been there for 20 or 30 years and knows way more than you. 
Who was your favorite beat writer to interact with? Was it me? You can uh, say it. What? No, nah, you know, nah, to be honest. Favorite? Uh, I think, you know, I, Chris has like an unfair advantage because he's a Cardinals fan, you know? <laughs> but Everyone always picks Chris. I, Everyone always no, nah, but I, I, I was, I'll say Brendan. Me and Brendan probably talked the most. I yeah. Think. Well, while we were on the beat, I'm pretty sure. And like you said, like even if we, some some guys are more standoffish. Honestly, without naming people. Um, yeah, yeah, you don't have to name. You no, know, I don't think it's. Yeah, it's not anything personally, but I don't think. But like, like I said, even with me and Brandon, like if we had a disagreement or something, like we could come, and it would still be the same. I think that at that point, that's when I'm like, all right, this guy's he's cool. Like I can you know respect them, and, and we're fine. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely, I think so. Someone said I was cool on this podcast, Josh. We've done 235 episodes now. This will be 235. That's going to be the new intro. Instead of the Scott music, it's just going to be a clip of that on repeat. (laughs) It is is a very clickish beat. Like, I came in in 2013 with no ties to FSU at all. I'd covered high school sports at the Orlando Sentinel and and some recruiting stuff. So, like, I knew Chris Snee. I knew Josh, but Josh wasn't up there covering it uh, daily. So, it took a long, like it took, and that was the championship season and the James Winston stuff. So it took like three or four months, I think, for people to actually like, like no, hang out I, with him socially. Was, I can confess yeah. to the, to how it is too, because I get intimidated when I come up there. You know, I only make it up like five or six times a year. And I like, for example, when I was there for the first spring practice of this year, like you guys do that every day. So everybody's sitting there waiting for Mike Norvell and everybody's clicked up in their little groups, like standing, you know, with who they stand with probably every single day before practice. It's the same right. people that you stand with. So here I am. And it's like, which group am I going to walk up to and talk to? Who wants to talk to me? These pro- these people over here probably hate me. I don't know who they are. Like, you know, it's so I yeah. absolutely understand how it could be intimidating walking into just a group of people that have worked together for years. Yeah. And I think like for me, um, initially, maybe the first couple of practices, I had that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think eventually I just kind of got over it. Like I didn't care anymore. It was like, it's fine. If people want to be clicky, like, you know, I just graduated from college the same way there. <laughs> so right. it's not yeah. too different. I just had to focus on the, on the job at hand. I think for me, more so than maybe even how long guys had been on the beat with the age thing, because I was like the youngest guy on the beat by far. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was basically the same age as like, I, I got to Florida state. I think I was 22. So I was same age as some of the players had some players older than me. And I don't think anybody else on the beat, it was full time on the beat at the case could say that. Um, and so in a sense, like I could relate more to the players than I could the fellow beat writers. All right, man. Well, we appreciate your time. Um, mm-hmm. thanks for sitting down with us. I know you're a busy man in quarantine, <laughs> but good luck yeah. on your first NFL draft. Uh, is this yeah. kind of like covering signing day? Oh, bigger, than um, that, right? Bigger. Yeah. More, more it's bigger. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all it's like a grown up signing. Day. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know how, how much bigger it'll feel, you know, watching, watching the commissioner sit in his basement, but <laughs> you know, I, I'll get used to it. Yeah, man. All right. Well, good luck with everything, and uh, we'll be following you still. Good luck. See ya. All right. Thanks, man. Y'all too. All right. Reed, everybody of The Athletic, um, no longer a Florida State beat writer, but his two years here were unique to say the least. Unique 
and probably I want to give him crap about it. He's probably the only beat writer to come and go with Florida state and covering a team with a losing record. I don't know if there's anyone else living who can, who can say that. Yeah, who knows? I mean, who knows? Deshaun goes on to cover the New York Knicks next or whatever, but like in 20 years, 25 years, he's always going to look back on that time covering Florida state and just kind of say, what the <laughs> <laughs> kind of like what we talked with Trey Roland the other day, though, when the team is a dumpster fire and like Deshaun said, you either want your team to be really good or really bad. Uh, the end of the Jimbo era when you're winning 10 games, but out of playoff contention, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good with traffic, with the ability to tell cool stories. It kind of, it limits you. So he was to, to Deshaun's credit was able to tell unique, different stories in a pretty important time in Florida state history. He was polarizing, but he did it his own way. And I, I respect that. And I'm happy that we got the chance to interact with him and know him and, and kind of learn about his perspective and things mm-hmm. while he was covering FSU. It was good. And one of the things that we've learned from doing this series is that everybody kind of, well, anybody that makes their mark covering Florida state, must do it their own way. Like nobody is going to copy somebody else's style or approach and, and, and make a lane for themselves. You have to just stick with what you do and what you know and, and do it your way. And some people like it. Some people won't, but you know, the sun's going to rise the next day. And I think that's kind of what he was saying. Like no matter what happened on, on Twitter or what people were saying, Florida state, was going to trot out there for practice. He was going to be there and it just keep on writing, keep on turning out the content and turning the page. It's what you do, Brandon. It's very, uh, it is true. I'm, I'm very resilient. If nothing else, speaking of turning the page, who's up next on our meet the beat series. I think we're going to have Ingram Smith on. Is that the, the next one coming up? We next can week? get Ingram. Yeah, I can get Ingram uh, for, for next week for sure. Uh, I'm trying to, I've reached out to some other publications too, a little edgier to see if that works and, and it hasn't uh, come to fruition yet, but we'll, we'll keep on it and see what happens. We're not going anywhere, Josh. We're not going anywhere. So we'll have plenty of time to, to keep uh, doing this series while integrating in our uh, normal podcast. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate you listening to on the bench for Brendan Sinone. I'm Josh Newberg. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. 